Those that know me know that I have a deep love and attachment to the continent. Not least, I was born in the Gambia. My social media handles the Gambian. And I've traveled and I've been blessed and fortunate enough to have traveled extensively around the continent. I'm not someone that calls myself a Pan-Africanist, but I appreciate many Pan-Africanist philosophies. Not least, I do wholeheartedly believe that a healthy continent makes for a healthy diaspora. So today joining me, I have someone who is a dear friend of mine who I met in Senegal and we have mutual friends. Someone who knows all things about the continent as they've traveled around the continent and they cover the continent extensively. Amandla, Wagwan, what are you telling me? Ah, uh, how you doing, man? <laughs> it's, good to, it's good to be here. I'm good, man. Good. Thanks for, like, thanks, thanks for joining me. I'm so happy to have you on. Bro, so okay. tell me a bit about your work, man. I if I go if I go onto your Instagram, sorry, your your Twitter, I see Journal of West Africa. What does that entail? Yeah, so I'm I'm a journalist basically, and I've been a journalist for the last seven years. And for the last two and a half, mm-hmm. three years, I've been living in Senegal. I mean, from there, I cover West Africa. So I've I've been working for a few publications, Middle East Eye and Al Jazeera, and even the Telegraph as well. Yeah, and just getting around a bit, traveling a bit. Yeah, just getting to know the place, man. And yeah, it's been. It's been How's your off now, bro? My one off. It basically is where you where you left it. Basically, I'm afraid to say. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no way, no way, no, no, no. What do you mean you cover West Africa? Yeah, what are you covering? What kind of stuff are you covering? Yeah, exactly. So a few things I've covered, for example, I covered the elections in Mauritania, for example. I, I, I'll start in Mauritania. I think that's an interesting country to start with. So I was sent there okay. by a publication to cover the presidential elections there. And I basically had to try and find out about the different communities that are voting in the election. So on the first day, I went out into the desert, into the Sahara, right? And, you know, it sounds a bit cliche, but there was like a kind of meeting, you know, in this tent in the desert. And you had people drawn from what are known as the kind of Bedanes, the Arab Berber community of Mauritania. And they were supporting one of the candidates. I sat down, I spoke to them and everything. And I think that the one, one thing about Mauritania, right, is that people often have this impression that the Arab Berbers are the dominant you know, they're kind of like, in terms of the numbers, they're the dominant group. What I sort of found, right, when I was sort of sitting mm-hmm. there, I saw that the people coming to serve the drinks, the people coming to serve the food were black people, right? And that kind of surprised me because it's not something yeah. that I really hear about in Mauritania, right? I understand this is like a mm-hmm. learning curve for me being out there in, in West Africa. Later on down in the week, yeah. we went to some other communities and we went to see the black communities in Mauritania. And yeah. it was like, it was like a world apart, basically. Like you saw that the conditions they were living in were completely different. You know, the roads we were driving on became like kind of like potholes, you know, wow. flies. It wasn't the best conditions. And I got to understand basically yeah. a little bit more about the sort of demography of the country, basically. And okay. so since then, basically, I've done a lot of work around black Mauritanians. The country has a, has okay. a legacy of slavery. There's a lot of institutional racism. And so that's something that I've sort of done. And so when I say cover, what I mean is that I report, basically. So I basically build up contacts in a country maybe around certain issues. Mm-hmm. And when something happens or when something breaks, I try and cover that um, using those sources, basically. So yeah, that's, that's what I mean by Okay, that. so what you just told me, you're a part-time journalist, part-time anthropologist, part-time gossip queen. Quite... No, I'm just playing. <laughs> I don't know the last part. Yeah, you're, that's, you're that's G, basically you're it. G. That's basically it, to be honest. <laughs> nah, Please but what I want to challenge, not challenge you, so I want to, I do want to ask you though, because many people don't know what journalists do. So talk me through like how you get breaking news or, or is that something that is that classified or talk me through your work, for yeah. example. Yeah, so, you know, like these things work differently. They, they work in different ways, right? So let me, okay. let me give you an example. So like sometimes you're just like, you, you know, I might be there reading the news or I'm reading Twitter 
and I see that something something happens, it, it grabs my attention. Yeah. Right. And so what I might do is just like you know drop that okay. person like a DM and say like you know slide in <laughs> and say like I'm a journalist, like you know you're interested in talking to me, I'm really interested okay. in this issue. So then I'll talk to that. Maybe I talk to that person, right? So let's let's take an example now. I did I did a story about a, a year ago about Mauritanian refugees mm-hmm. in Senegal, in the north of Senegal. And I literally found someone on, on Twitter. I mean, we, we did a few stories together. Mm-hmm. And one day he like tweeted something about these refugees and these Mauritanian refugees in Senegal. So I just, I, I asked him basically, he put mm-hmm. me in touch with someone else. And that person said that I could travel with him to go meet these refugees. It was, it was like a seven, mm-hmm. six or seven hour journey. So I had mm-hmm. to basically do some preparation beforehand. I had to try and um, research the situation, the history of this particular, the reason why these refugees um, are now living in Senegal. I had to like yeah. think about, you know, possible angles I could take. And I went up there into this place. I had to also bring a trans- translator with me as well because they, they speak Fulani, the Fulani language. It's not a language that I speak. So we, we got up there and it was interesting because I had to really, I was met by the village chief and the, the entire sort of community sat down basically in a circle around me, right? And I had to pitch to them, oh, wow. convince them that what I wanted to do was something that was worthwhile and that I wasn't there to waste their time and that I was trying to basically be of benefit to them, right? And then I, I spoke to wow. them and they kind of conferred among themselves. <laughs> like literally, they asked me questions, some challenging questions. And then eventually Why they- Why does it sound like of... you're, you're engaging in a scene from Nollywood here? Yeah, <laughs> it's good. <laughs> It's got that sort of thing. It's literally, literally, I had to go and pitch to the village chief. It's like, it's one of them ones. Like, honestly. I love it. Um, I love it, was, it. it was amazing, yeah. And, you know, like, while we're talking, like, you know, the kids playing football, there's, like, sheep running around, the place is dusty. It's like, and then after, yeah. I kind of got their trust and we just, I started interviewing them. And when you sort of interview them, so you basically, it's, it's, it's a difficult process because as you're interviewing okay. someone, you're thinking in your head, like, what direction... Like, they're telling me their story, but how can I put this down on paper, right? And, you know, then I'm thinking about how can I basically translate what I'm seeing and what I'm hearing onto paper. So what I mean is that it's not just about the story they're telling. Mm. I'm also thinking about the way they're looking, right? The way they're talking to me, the way they're sitting down, what they're wearing, the scars on their faces. You know, know, maybe, maybe they have, like, these this particular community, they had, like, the women had, like, tattoos on their lips, you know, things like that. So I have to try and capture yeah. like, all of that. And it's quite a difficult process. And then afterwards, you've got to get that all kind of transcribed. You get like a big sort of, you know, translate all of that stuff, get it transcribed in a big text. But then you've got to try and go through yeah. it and try and pull out a way to tell their story, basically. That's something I can't really describe. It's just I love kind of, that. No, I spend time with it and it just happens. That's like a, you're like a, like a, like one of those, I just imagine like an old school griot telling the stories of, um, <laughs> of the people. You know, obviously from West, no, but West Africa, you know, we have the tradition of, you know, the old tradition of the griots. Of course, of course, of course. The griot wasn't yeah. trusted with keeping, them, keeping the, the, the the stories alive of the people. And I think that's, you know, you're the exactly. modern day griot. And I love that. I love that. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think, I think that's, that's, that's definitely part of it. Kind of what the griot is. No, no, I think, I think that's definitely part of it, you know, keeping certain stories alive. And that, I, I, think, I think that's a big part of it, actually. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Let's yeah, unpack that for a bit. What did you do? Before, so how did you get to, to become a journalist in West Africa? That's a question now, because you're not West African, are you? Yeah, so I mean, okay, I mean, I have a connection. I have a, I have roots in West Africa, right? I'm sure of that. Okay. And, and the story, the story of my family, basically, that's come down to us is that my great, great, great grandmother was basically mm-hmm. forced into a slave ship in the Gambia, right? It wasn't the Gambia then, oh, wow. but at the beginning of the 19th century, she was put into a slave ship and taken to the ship that actually was heading to America, but it got shipwrecked in the Caribbean, mm-hmm. right? 
And she had to swim for safety, basically, to the shore. And she arrived on the island of St. Vincent. And the island of St. Vincent at the time, that there was slavery on the island. So she ran, basically, and she basically settled yeah. under, sort of on the, on the coast, under some hills, in, in a place called Edinburgh, where, where my family still reside today. And what's interesting is that on top of those wow. hills, that's where the British have their main fortification on the island. So she literally was kind of shadowed underneath <laughs> the main British, the, you know, the wow. cannons and everything else that, you know, they kind of solidified their hold. So yeah, so my, my family come from the Caribbean and I guess, grow, I mean, growing up, my parents had, over, I've always had like a strong connection to the continent. You yeah. know, they gave me a name, Amandla, which, which means freedom, power, which is a name, you know, from South Africa, right? Um, and which was like the yeah. sort of, like the slogan of the, of the ANC, of the anti-apartheid movement. So there's always like a kind of African consciousness. So it was never, yeah. Africa was never something alien to me as such. Um, okay. But what happened is I basically got like a scholarship basically a few years ago. And I decided that actually, you know, I'd mm-hmm. like to maybe just use that money to travel. Um, and I went to Senegal for a little while okay. and it just kind of worked out. And I just, I just decided to stay there for longer. Yeah. yeah. And some, what are some like the biggest like takeaways, like also big stories or, or like, you know, if, what is it about West Africa that made you stay there for so long? Yeah, it's a good point. I think for me, I found it a very peaceful experience, you know? I don't, there are a lot of things I don't need to deal with like when I'm over there, right? So I don't need to deal with racism. Okay. <laughs> I don't need to deal with Islamophobia, right? And let's unpack. And, that. Let's unpack. Also... We, should, we should unpack that. We should unpack that. <laughs> yeah. We should unpack that. Yeah, go on. Why? Yeah. I, I tell them a lot. If people who are familiar with um, Akala's book, The Natives, he spe- you know, he says yeah. that um, he kind of dispels this rumor that Africans sold Africans. And I tell that, yeah, people have to understand pre colonial Africa was not divided into nation states. It was purely on, you know, on on tribal lines and and, 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 um, ethnicity. So, for example, people did not kind of feel affinity to those people. Let's say someone was in modern day Nigeria, Hausa, did not feel affinity to a Mandinka in in Mali or in what is modern day Mali and what in modern day Senegal and Gambia. Because, again, these were not, again, the demarcating factors were not colours. We're not, you know, only True. when the emergence of white people come to the come to the continent, we now have something called a black as a race, as a, and that's in contradistinction to white people as a race. So obviously, naturally, True. again, when, when I go with Africa now, even though again, you we, we are both aware that there's a massive colorism problem, but unpack it further when you True. say that there's Absolutely. no, I don't experience race in West Africa. Unpack it further for me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, yeah. So, okay, so I mean, I'll, I'll say two things, right? So one is that. The people, the people around me are not judging me based on my race, basically, mm-hmm. right? There isn't like a sort yeah. of, they don't have like an, a sort of innate suspicion or it's not, I'm, I'm not othered because of the colour of my skin, right? Ooh. And, and what, yeah, what's quite that. interesting in Senegal is that people always think I'm Senegalese. Like I, I will speak to them in English and they're still convinced I'm Senegalese. So that, yeah, that's another layer. Good. They don't even think I'm foreign in a way, which is quite a weird experience because when I'm oh, in the Caribbean, sorry, for example, you, you cut out quite for a bit, you know? Sorry, you cut out sorry, quite a bit. Can you go yeah, from so, no worries, can can you go from the point of people don't judge you by your race? Yeah, so when I when I'm in Senegal, for example, yeah, I'm not being judged by the colour of my skin. People are not assigning my, my value isn't dependent on what my skin colour is, right? So people aren't yes. gonna look at me and say that, you know, he's a bit suspicious because he's black, right? Or yes. and that that's really interesting. But I, I think on top of that as well, Senegalese people always think I'm Senegalese. Like I will speak to them in English, <laughs> that's the language I speak, and they'll still they'll be adamant that I'm Senegalese. Right, so that that in a way like makes me feel even more kind of accepted in a way, and and not kind of othered as someone else. And and it's interesting yeah. because in the Caribbean, people are very quick to note that I'm not born in the Caribbean, right? And and actually, a lot of people ask me, "Are you African? Are you African? Are you African?" 
It's a question I get all the time in the Caribbean, which is mm-hmm. which is quite remarkable considering how I'm treated in Senegal. In, in, you know, in yeah. And but but at the same time, I, I should I should say this right is that in Senegal, like at the same time, I've, I haven't been to a country that where the sort of the colonial roots, uh, yeah, the roots of colonialism are so are so evident in Senegal at the same time, right? You know, unpack that further for me. Yeah, yeah so. There are many things I think it being a black country, right? And yeah. with people there not having to, to to face everyday racism that people in the West would face, people in Britain would face, people in America would face, it means that they haven't really yeah. they, it means they haven't been forced to develop a sort of an anti racist sort of outlook as such, in this you know, in the same way that, that we might. Yes, you had yeah. you know anti colonial heroes and stuff like that, but that generation is kind of is kind of gone basically, right? So I kind of find of that people are comfortable with things that we, you know, in the West here would not tolerate, right? So I'll give you a few examples, right? Oh, um, okay. Would, yeah, it's an example, yeah. Yeah. So like, for example, some people would have heard of Gore Island, basically, which is um, an island off the coast of Dakar, of the, off the coast yeah. of Senegal, where many slaves were if brought those, to before they were shipped off. If those want to know about the Gore Island, here when, sorry, here where Akon is saying... Gore Islands, where all the slaves were shipped from. That's in his song, Senegal. That's an amazing right, song. Right, right, right. But yeah, carry on. Right, right. Yeah. So on. So I, I went to the, there's like a museum, you know, the, the House of Slaves. We went together, I remember. And the tour guide was literally just, just yeah. like saying to us that it was Africans' fault for slavery. Like he was just, he was just pinning the blame on Africans <laughs> and reducing the wow. blame on, on the European powers. And that was, that was like super bizarre. Like, you know, there was no outcry about that, right? On top of that, Angori Island, yeah. the symbol of the brutality of slavery, there literally was, well, you know, was a square called the Place, the Place of Europe, the Place de l'Europe, basically, right? This kind of square with the European Union flag and everything. Yeah. And it just made me think as well, like, like how, why, why would you tolerate that? And the reason that I've sort of realised is because mm-hmm. there isn't this in-your-face racism all the time. And so people are maybe a little bit tolerant of things that we wouldn't tolerate, you know, in the West. You know that for me, that's it can be a bit troubling at times because you know Senegal is a country where the currency is still a colonial currency. It's still tied um, to the French, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right. You know, there are many things really that you see um, they haven't really, really dealt with. So that, that, so, so yeah. So my point is that on on a day to day level, in terms of like interpersonal relationships, racism isn't there. But when you look at the bigger picture, yes. right? When you look at Senegal's place in the world, its relationships with other countries. I mean, those relationships are still basically premise on racism and white supremacy and colonialism right? wow that's a very that's a very tough charge so let, let's unpack that even further then <laughs> so in terms of compare if we're gonna that's a very tough charge we're gonna compare it now so what you're saying essentially black people in senegal are less equipped to deal with racism or the racism is just different i'm saying that if you're if you, i mean I've, you know a friend a friend of mine maram gay she's a professor a senegalese yeah. she's a professor in america and she said to me that like she became black when she arrived in in the u.s Right, she she wasn't exposed. Mm. She didn't really understand racism, even race for that for for that matter. And still, she left Senegal and and went to the West. You know, so you know, I think I think a lot of these things. You know, our responses, our anti racism, and and our campaigning, and the work that we do is you know really does arise from from our experience in relation to a dominant culture, a majority culture, which is not black, which is white. Right, that's where it arises from. And because those circumstances don't exist in Senegal, they're not seen as an issue. If that makes sense. No, 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 absolutely makes yeah, sense. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely makes sense. So then, okay, 
I have two questions then. I've been talking recently about a global diasporic identity, yeah? Mm. But mm. what you're saying essentially then, that global uh, diasporic identity, black identity, can only be formed and connected mm. through those in the West or those in the diaspora. And you won't necessarily no, have no. a connection. Because again, when people, I'm going, cause when people yeah. ask me, people ask me, what, mm. what do you mean by global diasporic identity? What do you mean by this? And people say, but oh, but you know, we have Somalis who are East African, different culture, different language. They sure. don't, whatever. And then we have West Africans, different, you know, different culture. And it's, and it's an sure, amalgamation sure. of different ethnicities. Mm. But I often say, no, our global identity in, in the West is that we come under this term black. When the police stops you or me, he's not thinking to himself, oh, but he, this person's gambling, I'm going to let this go. He's from so saying yeah. kids, I'm going to let him go. It's just black. It's just a black person, yeah? So I'm saying that technically we come under this term black and because we experience the world, the Western world, as black people. Why are you saying then True. the race, if we want to do anti-racism work on the continent then, will be much different True. then? And what would that even look like, for example? Because yeah. again, the, there is racism on the continent. There's exploitation. There's a legacy of colonialism, yeah. which is very heavy and still continues to sure. exploit and weighs heavy on the continent. Absolutely. So I don't know, what would that kind of global anti-race work look like in your eyes? Yeah, you yeah, know, I, I think I think it's a very good question. And I think that one, one of the problems on the continent is to do with education, right? As I've said, mm-hmm. the forces of, of neocolonialism are, are really very, very, very evident in Senegal, you know, from, you know, from the money, from the language, from, you know, from whatever. And it's, it's a matter of if people were alive to that, Right, if people educated and alive to that, and, and 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 let me just make it clear that some people are very alive to it. Right, there are many people in Senegal. You know, there's okay. a strong um sort of activist, you know, activists, you know, sort of groupings who are very alive to it. But if if people are more alive to it, then they would understand that their current position as Senegalese people is built on a history mm-hmm. of racism. It's built on a history of slavery. It's built on a, on a history of colonialism. Right. So for me, it's the bigger picture of racism that I'm talking about. People are basically mm-hmm. not being educated about it. And I think that if they were, then they would see themselves very differently. Is that sort of making sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes absolute yeah. sense. Makes absolute yeah. sense. But then yeah. the question is, and on the continent, you find, do they feel connected to the global black struggle? Yeah, it's another good question again. So, so one of the things, so when we had Black Lives Matter, for example, yeah. I, I went down, there, there was a protest in Senegal, I went down to it. It's maybe about like kind of 50 people. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't like a, you know, a big crowd and stuff. And, you know, they had some speeches, yeah. you know, some people were sort of, you know, talking about the violence in America and how they um, obviously, you know, stand in solidarity with it. But, what, but one of the interesting things about Senegal or living in Senegal is that because this this is a country within the Francophone zone, it's, it, it's a French-speaking country. Exactly. It basically means that it's not open, exactly. right? It's not plugged in to the same circuits of activism, the same circuits of, of culture as we are here in the UK, or people in Gambia might be, or people in Nigeria mm-hmm. might be, or people in America, right? Language, you know, really makes a difference. And, you know, let's not forget, for example, that France, right? So, you know, many Senegalese will go to France and they'll study there and, you know, they'll come back. But France is a country that doesn't actually recognise race. It doesn't recognise blackness, right? It doesn't, <laughs> you know, it doesn't even have figures for the numbers of black people in France, the number of Arabs in there. It, it doesn't count these figures. So it doesn't, it has an, has an idea of universalism, which doesn't take into account race. Right, and so that is also reflected back mm-hmm. in Senegal in a way that in the English people that is unacceptable. Sees, sees race, um, sorry, yeah, I think France sees race as quite divisive, isn't it? That's what, that's that's what they exactly. use, it, isn't it? They see it as quite a divisive. Tool exactly, everyone's just French. Exactly, exactly, and 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 that that is that I think that's definitely reflected um, in Senegal. That influence is definitely reflected. So 
so so so so being locked into this francophone zone means that you know mm. what events taking place in the English speaking world don't penetrate um in the same way does that make sense yeah um so so yeah, so yeah, yeah so yeah, I mean, but, but but you know, but it's quite fascinating because when you when you do meet people, what's what's really interesting, right? Is that when you do meet people, and you know, I, I mean, I, I should I should also add that you know within the French speaking sphere, there are many you know prominent anti-colonialists, anti-imperialists, anti-racists, right? You know, uh, you know, there are people like yeah. I don't know, like you know, Secretary, you know, he kind of you know had his you know he had his critics, but at least you know there, yes. were, there were people who were who were standing up to power um, within that sphere as well. So that, that, that's not to dismiss. Mm-hmm. There's Franz Fanon, of course. Mm-hmm. There's Aimé Césaire. You know that you know there's a whole um, you know list of people that that we can cite when we're talking about this this stuff. Um, but I do think that the language divide um, has an impact on how we on on kind of like the connections between global black cultures. Um, and and, be, and being in, and being in Senegal has made me realize actually like that it can be quite presumptuous just to sort of think that there's one kind of global black culture because language really does shape how we see the world. Absolutely. But then, okay, language then. Let's talk about language then. So if they're not, I can totally understand they they may not be learning the English speaking revolutionaries, for example. They might know about them, but maybe not have studied them in depth because obviously their main language of transmission and teaching and education was in English. So for example, hmm. it, it doesn't, not far-fetched to say, let's say many people in Senegal might not know in depth the story of Fred Hampton, for example. Just for example. Sure, sure. But then how sure, about... Sure, sure. The French, the French Revolution, the French writers, for example, would Senegalese people be well versed with Thomas Sankara, for example? Yes, maybe, yes, yes. Absolutely, absolutely. French or, or for example. Absolutely, yeah. I think you're absolutely right. They are plugged in to those things and and those figures. And and you know, let's not forget that the, you know, there's also a history of you know Islamic scholars or Islamic figures as well. You know, who exactly. were sort of resistant as well. And we, we should also recognise that. I guess what I'm saying, however, is that I think that. In the English-speaking world, and I hope I'm not just sort of, I'm overplaying this, but there are university courses, there are professors, there are, there's a whole culture that, you know, the think tanks, the institutions, mm-hmm. right, that are devoted towards this, you know, to anti-racism, mm-hmm. and which, you know, there's, there are films, there's media, I think that that sort of very sort of fertile culture, it's so kind of overwhelming, in fact, actually, um, the sort mm-hmm. of, the narrative of, of, you know, of civil rights and black power. You know, and, and, and especially because of because of the fact that it comes out of America, yeah. right? America can pump pump this information around the world, you know, so much. It has you know, it has that kind of exactly. cultural kind of capital to do that, right? I think that while they can tap into Sankara and the and, and, and these figures, there is so much more that perhaps the average Senegalese person can't always tap into. But I but I find it interesting that I've come across a few people who who've sort of said like they've rejected French. They've said that I don't want to learn French, I want to I want to okay. learn English because English liberates me from you know seeing the world you know, in that way. I, want, I do want to ask you then, this might be a bit of a heavy question and obviously I, I, I don't sure. want to downplay it. I don't want to get you in trouble either. But are you essentially saying then for black liberation in terms of those in the diaspora, it is futile looking towards the continent? No, 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 no. So absolutely not. I think the continent, the, the, the continent is central to liberation, right? I think the continent is central to liberation. Okay. Agreed. Right? What I'm basically saying, however is that because of the interface mm-hmm. of, of Black people encountering racism, you know, in the West, I think that mm-hmm. there are certain cultures that have developed in response to that. The fact, you know, we can say that the open face of colonialism um, isn't so evident in places yeah. like Senegal, even though it is there, yes. right? 
it just means that people respond very differently, you know? You know, let's not forget as well that, you know, there's, you know, there's South Africa, you know, there's many places, you know, the, the, the colonial experience on the continent of Africa is, is different throughout as well. And we should also recognise that, that, you know, South Africa yeah. had a very, very different experience. And South Africa's experience, I guess, is very, very, it's completely different from Senegal's. Kenya has its own experience, yeah. you know, with the, you know, with the Mau Mau's and stuff like that. So, I mean, I, I think there's a wealth that we can learn, no doubt, from Africa. I mean, Africa is, you know, is a centre of the kind of liberation struggle for us. So I'm just talking about in terms of the, of the sort of day-to-day struggle and kind of that being in that position of, of being minorities in the West. I think it, it does something to the sort of culture, to, you, know, to, you, know, you know, to our culture and what we produce and what we talk about and how we um, sort of navigate. We're always under the cosh. We're, we're, not, we're not free, actually, in the same way that people on the continent are, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? I, see, I, I, that, that I like, that I agree with, because I feel like I've always said that ultimately you knowing your time and context the best is going to help you create the most appropriate response to dealing within that context. So I totally understand sure. that. And there's particular nuances and particular idiosyncrasies that those who are living in the West are only uh, exclusive yeah. to those who are in the West. So that's totally understood. Um, I mean, I, so what I, I would say, we spoke a lot about... I would, I, would just, I would just add one more point, right? So at the beginning, you, you spoke about Pan-Africanism. And what's interesting about Pan-Africanism... Mm-hmm is that the leading thinkers of Pan-Africanism, which kind of formulated Pan-Africanism, were diaspora people, right? Because they were the ones mm-hmm. who were living in the belly of the beast, so to speak. So they could see it up close, exactly. right? So it was people like, you know, Marcus Garvey, C.L.R. James. There were people like George Padmore. These were people from the West. And it was really, you know, there were, there were Africans involved as well. Um, but I think that one, one of the key moments, really, is when Kwame Nkrumah, you know, Ghana's first president, he, he studies mm-hmm. in the West and he meets... Um, a number of key figures, C.L.R. James and, and and George Padmore, who are both Trinidadians. And he basically mm-hmm. comes back to the continent in 1945 and starts to agitate for, you know, for independence across across the continent. You sort of see this exchange of ideas mm-hmm. taking place um, in the West because these people yes. have kind of, that displacement and, and, and alienation for, had forced them to sort of imagine Africa as a liberated space, if that, if that makes sense. And then exactly. from there, Nkrumah takes that, Absolutely. comes back to the continent and starts to agitate for independence. Exactly. See, and this is what I'm trying to say. There's an interplay between the diaspora and the co- continent. Is something as a link that cannot be underplayed or it's, a, it's an inseparable link, really and truly. And this is why I always say to people, if you want to understand, if you want to really come to terms with the world we live in, I don't think there's a better tradition in the world of global white supremacy and understanding it and dealing with the hierarchical structures of power the black radical tradition, which is born out of the interplay of figures like Garvey, Malcolm X, uh, sure. MLK, and different, and you know, the list goes on. The black yeah. radical tradition, tradition from, to me is the most encompassing because it has been, yeah. it has dealt with the master, quote unquote, in quotation marks, at the longest. It has been the yeah, subject yeah, yeah. of Absolutely. these power structures, the longest. That's why I think I spoke a lot about, you know, what the continent can, what we can learn, so what the continent can learn from us. Now, what do you, what are some takeaways do you think us in the diaspora can learn from those who are living in the continent? Yeah, it's it's, 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 a, it's another good question. Now, if I can, if I can just, I think I think one thing that people in the continent definitely have is one of the things I love about Senegal is that there's like a kind of like innate sense of like brotherhood between people. You know, like mm-hmm. so basically, like if you were to like basically like I don't know, like you know, rate a society by how close two random people sitting on a bus. You know, you know, their level yeah. of interaction in London would kind of be, I don't know, like a little bit of sort of like suspicion, like who is this person that's the next to me on the bus that could, you know, maybe sort of like, I don't know, the conversation might, you know, might, might get as far as talking about the weather or something like that. I'm not very far in, in Senegal. There's a sort of like, 
an understanding that that you're that you know that you're my brother or you're my sister like kind of straight away and you know i've got a few examples of this it's quite a few a few kind of like funny examples um uh, what, what sticks out to you yeah well one, one of them actually was, was quite weird I was, I was on a plane actually coming back from senegal and the plane was about to take off yeah and this i mean this really surprised me given you know given senegal, senegal is quite a conservative country right and you know socially conservative yeah and i was sitting on the plane and this woman thrusts her, her hand basically like from behind me through the seat so like i'm sitting on the plane and, and this woman's hand is coming like in front of me through the, like th- like through the seat behind me i'm like what's going on i look back and she's like <laughs> yeah it's, it's really strange so i look back and she's like like almost crying so i'm like what's going on and she and she and she motions to me to to hold her hand basically and the problem was she was having was, was oh. actually like she, she's basically scared of flying basically so when when the plane was taken oh. off right she needed someone to like kind of just like hold her to like make sure she was okay Right. And that struck me as quite like, you know, she like, like, like she felt that she could do that. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't seen as something strange and yeah. it was expected that I would, that I would yeah. also respond in kind, you know, I kind of appreciated yeah. that. It was a bit of a weird experience I have to say, but I kind of appreciated that that was fine. I mean, another example, when I was coming to Senegal a few weeks ago, coming to London a few weeks ago, you know, like in, like this old man just comes up to me and he's just like, can you fill out my, I had to fill out a form for COVID. He's like, can you fill out my form? And the expectation is that I'm going to fill out his form. And he can, the fact that he asked me to do it, right. I think is, you know, yeah. it's testament to the fact that he just sees me as someone as, you know, as a brother or someone that can help him. And I really like, mm-hmm. like that sort of way, you know, of sort of doing things. People don't tend to... I love the hospitality in Senegal, man. Like it's one, exactly. it's one, I mean, West African hospitality for me is like right up there. Absolutely. Finally then, on socially conservative, very interesting then. So then let's say, how about, yeah. do they talk about the stuff we have in the West then? Let's say right now with the trans movement, for example, is that something that's a topic of discussion? Is that they're, they're aware of those things in Senegal? Yeah, so I guess I'm laughing because these things do pop up every now and again. And, they, and they've popped up in, yeah. you know, in Mali and other countries as well. And okay. then they're often basically kind of presented as being Western phenomenons, basically. And okay. the sort of idea, the idea that people talk about is that, you know, we don't have LGBT people here you know, they don't exist. And, and, you know, this is a Western phenomenon and kind of all of that. The other side of it, of, of that, right, is that yeah. one, I've, I've kind of gathered this from speaking to people. One, one thing about Senegalese society, and, you know, I, I see it myself, is that people don't ask too many questions. People kind of live and let live, actually. Yeah. And when there are incidents or when people start to sort of bang the drum about this and that is Western and we don't have these people here, there have been instances, actually, when they've been attacked or people have been forced to leave the country because this seems to rile people wow. up in some ways so yeah these so, so yeah you know this i mean basically the the, the sort of culture war that, that you know that you know if you want to put it like that yeah. that you sort of that, you know that you sort of see in in the west you know you know between sort of i guess uh you know social liberals and social conservatives i've seen i've seen it play out in senegal and it hasn't and hasn't hasn't always been pretty wow. yeah I mean, we could talk forever, man. This has been a truly insightful conversation. I love this conversation. You are a force for good. I think I'm going to post Amanda's handles. Before we, I cannot I cannot forget the most, one of the most important things. You have a book coming out. Oh, it's already out. Yeah, yeah. I just, I just, <laughs> yeah, thank you. I just had a book come out. Small, it's a small book. It's a text and it's about Stokely yeah. Carmichael, Kwame Ture. He was one of the leaders my of guy. Black, my guy. black power movement. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's, he's someone who, you know, who a lot of people know and, and they've taken inspiration from. What I realised, actually, was that there's nothing really written about him, about the time he spent in Africa. And he lived, he lived in, in Guinea, in West Africa, for about 29, 30 years. And there was nothing mm-hmm. written about that period of his life. So I, I basically, I found some of his old comrades. I went to Guinea. I travelled even, you know, to Trinidad and to other places. Oh, and I, I've, I've written no. like a small book. Oh, you're going to make 
gonna make me talk another hour with you, bro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so yeah, I mean it's, it's been it's really been a journey for me as well, right? Because I think the conversation that we're talking yeah. about, the diaspora and Africa and stuff, that's something that you know, he he was born in Trinidad, he went to live in, in the US and then he came to yeah. Africa, right? So he he kind of had been yeah. on that journey as well between the continent and the diaspora. And it's it's been and so kind of researching him has kind of helped me to understand, you know, a bit more about about the you know the relationship between the continent and the diaspora. So yeah, it's it's, it's really a fascinating. He's, he's a fascinating person. I mean, I'll just say one thing about him. Maybe maybe a couple of things if um, if I can. One of them is that please, um, please. yeah, I, I find it really interesting the fact that this was someone who was a quintessential Pan African. He is he goes down as as one of the biggest Pan African mm-hmm. figures, but he also was looking at struggles beyond the Pan African sphere. Right. So he was very, very vocal mm. on the rights of Palestinians, for example. Very, very, very vocal, actually. Mm. And arguably, he's probably he might go down, actually, as the most vocal um, support, black supporter of Palestinian rights um, that there has been. Right. And another thing that he that I found so fascinating was the way that he, he tried to live by his values in his personal life as well. So I, I went to the, the neighborhood that he, he lived in for the last like nine years of his life. And you know, this is like, yeah. what, 20 years after he died? And people still remembered him. People still talking about him. The fact that, you know, he would open his house. It would be like a community center. All the children would come and play. Um, every Sunday without fail, he would take the children down to the beach. They'd have to take, they'll go to islands off the coast of, of Guinea. So to take a boat and then go to the beach on these islands. And he'd be teaching them how to swim, as well as sort of giving them lectures um, about, you know, you know, them needing to sort of stick close together. And I, I spoke to um, his eldest son, Boka, and one of the things he said was that, Komitore was also was very adamant that Boka, for example, his son, would have an upbringing that was exactly like any other child in Guinea. So he'd wanted to send him to yeah. the mum's village, like to you know learn the Quran, uh, and just to be like a village boy. He didn't want him to have like you know a sort of a privileged education. Um, his mum wanted obviously wow. to have the best for best for her son, and so there was a kind of there was a kind of clash there. But but I I just found it interesting, um, so fascinating that for all those years he he really tried to stick by his principles. I, you know he. He wasn't perfect, and I, you know, I talk about some of the the mistakes or the contradictions um, that he makes. You know, he really tried to live a you know, sort of live the life that he often spoke about in his speeches, and, you know, and everything else. It's interesting. Now, his commentary is a towering figure. I mean, J. J. Edgar Hoover yeah. says about him, you know, he would have he is like the second Malcolm X, literally. Right. Exactly. So, um, exactly. But yeah, okay. Exactly. Again, I know we can talk forever about him. <laughs> I think we might have to another time. We might have to, I'm gonna have to do an episode I'll, of Kamai Tour and I'll, I'll be more than happy to. Yeah, I'm gonna keep I'll be more than happy to. So where can, you get, where can we get the book, bro? So it's it's available from Chimurenga. So it's published by a, a magazine called Chimurenga. And I'll just read out the, okay. the website. So so Chimurenga, which is spelled C H I M U R E N G A. Chimurenga Chronic. Mm-hmm. Chimurenga Chronic. C H R O N I C. Dot co dot za mm-hmm. za being South Africa, space in South Africa. Chimurenga Chronic co dot za, and you can order the book there. And I will post that uh, in a section about about the about section of this episode. Please, I post I'm at okay, um, socials and I post the book link there as well. So, guys, you are listening to the Malcolm Effect with your host Mamadou. This has been a truly insightful conversation. Please like, comment, share, subscribe wherever you're listening to, whether that's on YouTube. Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And until next time, take.